0: When, uh, when my son was little, I bought him a toy bow, because every kid needs a bow, and he went around shooting that forever, and uh, he loved it. And then at one point, it was time for him to graduate to a real bow. I wanted him to get a compound bow so he could eventually start hunting with me. So I called a friend of mine, Mark Bendixson, and Mark's a, a big bow hunter, and his boys hunted with him. And I said, Mark, uh, what do I need to do? What do I need to, to, to buy for Ben? What's the next step in uh, him shooting a bow? And Mark said let me just give you one of my son's bows. He's outgrown it. He doesn't need it any longer. Let me just give this to you. It's a really, really nice compound bow. And of course, my response is, let me pay for it. And I, I felt like I needed it. I mean, it was a nice bow, and I wanted to pay him for it. And he said, Brian, I don't want, to, I want you to pay me for it all. I just, I just want to give it to you as a gift. I said, no, really, Mark, I need, to, I need to, to give you something for this bow because it's a really nice bow. You can't just give it to me as a gift. He said, but I want to give it to you as a gift. Just receive the gift, and so finally I relented, and uh, I received a really nice gift from Mark, this compound bow that was the perfect size for Ben, so I took that bow, and I went down to uh, Live Oak Archery, and I put a new string on it, put new sights on it, got him some arrows that were cut down just for his side, size, and I got a new case for the bow and a new trigger for him, and I presented this to him as all just you know perfect and beautiful, and, and the crazy thing was my son didn't offer to pay me for it right? I'm like, which was completely appropriate. I didn't want him to pay me for it. He just said thanks, and he ran outside, and he began shooting his bow. And I thought, you know, that, that that's what actually I think God wants from us, right? Just say thanks. So as parents, we put all these nice gifts for our kids under the tree on Christmas Day, and they never offer to pay us for it, and maybe it's just because they're greedy. That's probably part of it. But um, But also, that's just appropriate because parents love to give good gifts to their kids. We like to do that. We want to do that. And we just want them to say thank you and en- enjoy it. And I think that's really, in a sense, what the Lord wants from us, that we would just say thanks. But there's something in us that we feel like as we get older and we become adults that we need to we need to earn it. We need to merit. We need to contribute. We need to participate. And God says, I just want to give it to you as a gift. So, so we've been studying the book of Romans. So the theme is this. Uh, the gospel is good news because we're saved by faith alone. And last week, we really drilled deep into this idea of being declared righteous by faith. And what I want to really focus on this morning is that final word, alone, that we're declared righteous, we're put back in right relationship with God by faith alone. Not just by faith, but by faith alone. Faith stands alone. And that is sometimes difficult for us, uh, again, in in our pride, to be humbled and realize that we, we can't earn it, we don't deserve it, we just have to receive it. But it's just a gift. Notice what Paul says in Romans 3 verse uh, 27, to kind of set the stage for verse chapter 4. He says, where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Notice his play on words. He says, by what kind of law? A law of works no, but by a law of faith. Well, faith is not a law. What he's saying is, in a really poetic way, in a sense, is there's a law or a principle that's faith. And the principle of faith is this. Your debt of sins is removed, and you're given the gift of eternal life by faith and by faith alone, and this applies to every person without exception. That's the law or the principle of faith. Faith must stand alone. And so to prove his point, Paul goes back to Abraham as an example or a paradigm of how a person enters into a right relationship with God, and it's important to understand why God or why Paul chooses Abraham in particular. Obviously, uh, Abraham is the the uh, the, f- the founder of the Jewish nation, so to speak. Right? He was he was the father of uh, Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons, and those twelve sons became the twelve tribes. So Abraham is the the father of the Jewish nation, but even more importantly, Abraham is the recipient of a promise from God that would bless not only him and not only his family, but would actually bless all nations. All nations would have the opportunity to be put back in a right relationship with God through the promise that was made to Abraham. In fact, through that promise, God was going to set everything right, even all of creation. So all of the alienation and frustration that people experience because of the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 is going to ultimately be set right through these promises that God has made to Abraham. And so Abraham would stand in a sense then as a paradigm of a person's back and right relationship with God. They have to follow the pattern that Abraham followed. Now, what's interesting, though, is in the in the the, the period of times called the intertestamental period between when Malachi was written and then John the Baptist showed up on the scene. It's about 400 years. Uh, there were no no prophetic books were written, but a lot of theology was discussed during that time. It's called the intertestamental period. And during that intertestamental period, Abraham began to take on mythic proportions. But Abraham was seen as this uh, paragon of personal character and virtue. Uh, listen to these words. This is from Jubilees. It's a book that was written in the intertestamental period. Jubilees, chapter 23, verse 10. The author said, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. The prayer of Manasseh was written, Abraham did not sin against thee, God. Is that an accurate assessment of Abraham? Your chapter 4. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, Paul's saying God was not impressed with Abraham. Abraham wasn't chosen because of his personal virtue. God chose Abraham, and through Abraham, to bless all nations because of God's gracious Choice Abraham, in other words, we're going to see, was declared righteous. His debt of sin is re- was removed. He was given the gift of eternal life by faith and by faith alone. Not because of his good works, not because he practiced religious rituals, and not because he obeyed the law. Just by faith and by faith alone. And the same is true of us. So the gospel is good news because we are saved by faith and by faith alone. Read me, chapter 4. We're going to read through verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified or declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So Paul's going to make three points in this chapter. The first is this, the gospel is good news because faith does not require our best efforts. Notice again, verse two, it says, Abraham was justified. If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about. We would like to boast. We would like to claim some credit. We're okay, even if it's 99% God, as long as it's 1% us. But Abraham was declared righteous by faith and faith alone. And if you look at Abraham's life, it wasn't a perfect life. Abraham had plenty of failures. He had some big failures. Uh, He remember he gave away his wife not once but twice. I mean, man, Abraham had some bad moments, some low moments. He wasn't chosen because of who he was or because of his good deeds. He was not consistently righteous. In fact, one of the things I love about uh, the Bible is the heroes are all portrayed as they are. It's pretty raw. All of the heroes are pretty deeply broken. Now, I want you to hold your place in Romans and turn back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. What we're going to look at is uh, this passage that Paul quotes in Romans 4. And I would argue that Genesis chapter 15 uh, is really the foundation and the very heart or essence of Paul's theology of justification by faith. This is where he keeps coming back to. Genesis chapter 15 and verses 1 through 6 we're going to read together. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was given a promise. Genesis chapter 15, years later, That promise was turned into a covenant, or God ratified with Abraham the promises in the form of a covenant. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him or he credited it to him as righteousness. So Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was given three promises. You're going to get a land, you're going to have a seed or descendants, and you're going to get a blessing. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your family, I'm going to bless all nations through you, land, seed, and blessing. But Abraham said, this is uh, 10 years later, I don't have an heir. At this point in time, he's 85 years old. His wife is 75 years old. And he said, how is this actually going to transpire that you would fulfill this promise to me? And God said, I want you to go out, look at the stars, and as you look at the stars, I want you to try to count them. You can't. I promise you, your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the first time belief or faith is mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Abraham believed God, and by faith and by faith alone, it was credited to him as righteousness. That is, he received a status that he did not deserve. He was merited or credited with righteousness just on the basis of believing God. And as the story goes on, now God ratifies or demonstrates through a covenant ceremony that he will fulfill his promise. Look at verse 9. So, Abraham, so God said to Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So, in this covenant ratification ceremony, we've we've talked about this, but it's been a while, so I want to refresh our memory. What would happen is, the parties of the covenant would take the animals and they would cut them in half. Just cut them right here. And they would lay the halves on opposite sides. And then they would hold hands and they would walk between the two halves of the split animals and they would recite the terms of the covenant. And the idea was this, may this happen to me if I break the terms of the covenant. So what happens is Abraham prepares all the animals, he splits them into. two, he lays them side by side, and then Abraham falls asleep. God puts him to sleep. And Abraham sees all of the rest transpiring in a vision. And Abraham doesn't he doesn't walk through the halves of the animal. Instead, there's a fiery torch that appears as a, as an epiphany epiphany. It's a, a vision of the glory of God. And God's glory passes between the animals, while Abraham is, in a sense, in, a, in a, a sleeping state, having a vision of all this. In other words, Abraham's not reciting the terms of the covenant. God takes upon himself all of the obligations of the covenant. God must fulfill the covenant. It's just the glory of God that passes between. This is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God says, I will fulfill my promises to you. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Turn back to Romans chapter 4. This forms the basis of the foundation of Paul's theology of justification by faith. Chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? If you work a job, you get paid. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, if you're, as you're studying the, uh, Romans chapter 4, I want you to underline the word credited. Remember, uh, last week we said uh, righteousness, just, justification. That's kind of the key word for the book of Romans. It occurs uh, 56 times. In Romans 4, the key word is credited. Romans 4... The word credited appears 11 times alone just in this chapter. Uh, It's a math term or an accounting term, uh, which simply means uh, to calculate or take into account to keep score. So what happens here is Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. Now, uh, apologies ahead of time to everyone who has a CPA or is an accounting prof here in the audience for morning. I'm going to use an illustration from accounting. And I want to apologize ahead of time. I took two accounting classes, at the end of which I did not change my major to accounting. And, you know, that was like 40 years ago. So I'm going I'm to admit ahead of time, this is going to be a very shallow illustration of accounting. Fair enough? So apologies to uh, Dr. Schaub for uh, my illustration. Okay, this is a balance sheet, it's a very simple balance sheet. I picked a very simple one because this is the level of my accounting skills, okay? Uh, assets and liabilities. Uh, if you've ever taken an accounting class, um, you know these terms. If you haven't, it's really simple. Assets are the good stuff. Liabilities, that's the bad stuff. Okay? That's really all you need to know about accounting. Uh, assets are the good stuff. Liabilities are the bad stuff. Before you knew Jesus, there was nothing in your assets, Colin. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It's zero. The best things that we have to offer are through our own strength and for our own honor and glory. We have no assets. We have a lot of liabilities. That's all of our sin. So our balance sheet is is really out of balance. No assets, lots of liabilities, lots of debt. What happens when you believe in Jesus? Your liabilities are removed. We talked about that last week. Your debt of sin is paid. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The limitless value of the blood of Jesus Christ removes your debt of sin. There's nothing any longer in your liabilities column. It's been paid for by Jesus Christ. And in your assets column, God credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't put into your assets column all of the character qualities and virtues of Jesus. You don't immediately become a better person. He credits you the status of Christ. Christ is right with God. And now if you are in Jesus Christ, you are right with God. All of your liabilities have been removed. They've been paid for. And the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. Read with me again verse 5 but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So I've said here faith does not require our best efforts. I would, I think I might even say it a little bit stronger if I were rewriting this, and I would say uh, faith excludes your best efforts. For faith to work, faith has to stand alone. In other words, your good works do not do anything to justify you or declare you righteous in the sight of God. You are declared righteous in the sight of God by faith and faith alone, okay? Faith and faith alone. So, if I can state it differently, your good works don't merit a relationship with God, your good works don't maintain a relationship with God, your good works don 't prove to God that you deserve a relationship with him your your good works don 't add anything to faith it 's faith alone through which God declares you to be righteous now um, i want to I want to illustrate this point by making a comparison and i want to I want to tell you ahead of time i 'm usually really really careful as a rule i don 't like to talk about what other people believe and do so in a way that makes it seem like what they believe is. Wrong, whatever. I like to really focus on what the Bible says and what's right in the Bible rather than the making these comparisons. But I think it's really important at this point be, to make a comparison between uh, Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology. Okay? Because the Protestant Reformation was a really, really important historical moment that clarified the gospel, in my opinion. Okay? So the, the Protest, in the Protestant Reformation, they were arguing a couple things. Um, one was uh, sola scriptura, meaning the ultimate authority of truth is the Bible. And not the church's interpretation of the Bible, but the Bible itself. And there's a priesthood of believers. That is, all of you who have, have equal access to the Father through Jesus. You don't need to go through me. You don't go through another person. You don't go through a priest. You also have an equal responsibility to read the Word, study the Word, and listen to the voice of the Spirit to guide you. Do we help one another in the process? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the Scripture, and not an organization, not an institution, and certainly not me, is, I'm not the ultimate authority. Or in the church isn't the ultimate authority. The word of God is the ultimate authority. And you are captive to the word of God, and you are responsible to study the word of God, right? That's where the authority lies. Also, they said salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. It is an absolutely free gift apart from works. Well, the Roman Catholic Church reacted against that. Council of Trent, they made a statement. Canon 9 says this. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema, okay, which is how theologians talk, which means it's not by faith alone that you are justified, but by faith and works. Is faith required? Yes, but also works. Works are necessary for you to be justified in the sight of God. What does the Apostle Paul say? Chapter 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does not work. But someone may well say, But Brian, what about James chapter 2? So I would refer you... Last year, if you are new at Grace, we studied the book of James. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon on James chapter 2. But I'm going to give you the 32nd version. James chapter 2, verse 24 says this. You see that a man is justified by works, by which he means by faith and works. He's not denying faith. He's just saying faith and works. You see the man is justified by faith and works and not by faith alone. Paul says, but to the one who does not work. Can these two be reconciled or is there a hopeless contradiction? Here's the problem. Uh, people have been trying to reconcile them uh, for millennia. They can't be reconciled because they're talking about two different justifications. Okay, in the simplest terms, they're talking about two different justifications. How are you declared righteous in the sight of God? Paul says, by faith and faith alone. How are you declared righteous by people? They see your good works, and they glorify God as a result of your good works. How does a person know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? By your works, by what you do. James is talking about our good works. James is focused on our justification in the sight of men. Read the book of James again. It's all about our good works. Would Paul object to this? He absolutely would not object to this. He's talking about a different justification. He's talking about justification or being declared righteous in the sight of God. James is talking about being declared righteous in the sight of man, which requires faith and works. Justification in the sight of God excludes works. Paul would agree. Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So works don't matter at all, do they? No, that's not true. That's not what Paul's saying. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Our good works are the overflow of having freely received forgiveness of sins And the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. So what do your good works add to your justification in the sight of God? Nothing. Nothing. This is the starting point. You freely receive a gift from God. So, first point Paul makes in chapter 4, the gospel is good news because faith does not require our best efforts. Second, faith does not require our religious rituals. Chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing, then, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How, then, was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that the righteousness might be credited to them." and the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but also who now follow in the steps of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, I told, Tristy asked yesterday which passage I was going to preach on, and she went and read it, and then um, she walked out of her bedroom and she said, boy, he sure says the word circumcision a lot. <laughs> I said, Yeah, we're going to read that together. And, um, you know, perhaps it's hard to go, how does that actually have relevance to us today. I'm, I'm going to argue that it's really relevant because, especially in the Bible Belt, we have a lot of rich, religious rituals that we go through that seem to stand out as markers of having a relationship with God or being mature in a relationship with God, especially in the subculture that we live in. And we, we talked, uh, Todd talked briefly about this back in Romans 2, but I wasn't here, so I want to I talk again about the significance of circumcision. Okay. Circumcision is an outward symbol of an inner reality. And what matters is the inner reality, but it's an outward symbol of an inner reality. So let's, let's trace it for a moment uh, the progression of Abraham's faith journey. Age 75, Abraham received a promise. That's Genesis 12 land, seed, and blessing. Ten years later, he's 85 and he receives a covenant. We just read that, Genesis chapter 15. The, the promise is ratified in the form of a covenant. It's an unconditional, unilateral covenant. So 75, he gets the promise. 85, he receives a covenant. And then 14 years later, when he's 99 years old, he receives the sign of circumcision. Okay, So he was justified. He was given a promise, then he was justified 14 years later. It's 14 years after that that he's given The sign, it's a sign or a seal of the faith that he already had. He was already declared righteous, but it was a symbol of the faith that he had. Now, uh, parents, you can either cover your kids' ears or you can just have a long conversation at lunch about circumcision. But um, briefly, okay, briefly, without getting graphic, why did God choose circumcision? Because where does the seed come from that fulfills the promise of future generations? It's a mark on the body That a a father and a mother say, we believe that God will fulfill his promises made to Abraham, which will bless us and will bless all nations. That's why that particular sign was given. Did he need to be circumcised in order to be declared righteous? No, he was already declared righteous. It was an outward symbol of the faith that he already had. Now, what's interesting is this became, in a sense, really the dividing point early on in the church. Because Jews trusted in Jesus first, and they had grown up with, the circ- with circumcision and the law, and so they thought, well, everybody else who comes into God's family and kingdom needs to come in exactly the same way. They need to behave like Jewish people. And this created incredible division between Jews and non-Jews. Uh, Acts chapter 15 is uh, really a turning point. It's a pivot point. It's a really critical chapter in the New Testament. Chapter 15, verse 1, reads like this. So some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? So these are Jewish followers of Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but it's faith plus. You need to believe in Jesus also, you need to circumcise your children. And even though circumcision wasn't originally part of the law, it kind of represented all of the law. And they said, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to follow all the rituals of the law if you want to be a part of God's family. And they had a huge debate and discussion Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. And at the end of the Jerusalem Council, they made this decision. Peter was speaking, and he said, But we believe that we, that is Jews, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that they, that is non-Jews, also are. Peter's saying, look, this is what we've concluded. Everyone is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not through the keeping of religious Ritual. Now, how is that relevant to us today? Well, I would argue again in this culture that we live in this Bible Belt, College Station, Texas, Texas A and M culture. There's, thank you, for that, (laughs) because I'm gonna kind of tag it a little bit. So that's you can maybe not whoop later. Um, We got a lot of religious rituals. What are the markers of being a Christian here in this culture? Well. Baptism is one. Do you need to be baptized to be saved? I mean, we used to baptize students in Rudder Fountain until we got thrown out. Because we wanted to make a right, this public profession. Do you need to be baptized? No, you don't. It's an outward symbol of a, an inner reality. It's an outward symbol that you have believed. Now you're identified with Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. Talk about that more in chapter 6. Uh, baptism. Church attendance. Bible studies. Lots of Bible studies. Got to be in lots of Bible studies. You need to have a study Bible, a big Bible. A thicker Bible is a better Bible, right? And James Avery, and you need to have rings, and you need to go to Breakaway and be a Breakaway volunteer. That's a big thing. And you need to, um, you know, send your kids to a Christian school, or even better, you homeschool them. Actually, don't do that because you want to be in the world an evangelist, so you send them to public school. But there's all kinds of markers. And you need to have t- tattoos, right? I mean, it's, But it's got to be Greek and Hebrew. On your tattoos, right? That, I mean, that really demonstrates it. So, you run into somebody who's a breakaway team lead with a Hebrew tattoo, marry him, right? I mean, that's clearly, clearly, right? We've got our distinguishing markers that are completely irrelevant without the inner reality, When our daughter was little, we gave her, for Christmas, we gave her a doctor's kit. and It had a stethoscope, and it had a little otoscope, and it had a little jacket, and we never let her practice medicine. (laughs) Because there was no inner reality to the outward symbol. And what does God care about? The heart. Have you believed? Have you received? So I ask you, especially for those of you who've grown up in the Bible Belt maybe grew up and going to church your whole life and you were baptized early and you went to Awana and you memorized 7,000 verses. And you're in four Bible studies and you're volunteering here and there and everywhere and you're giving money to the poor and you're giving money to dig wells. You even went and dug a well yourself and you're giving money to stop sex trafficking and you're doing all of these great religious things. What are you actually trusting in? If it's not Christ and Christ alone... It makes your faith void, okay? Faith must stand alone to be justified in the sight of God. Third reason that Paul is going to give give that the gospel is good news is this. Faith relies only and exclusively on God's promises. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Paul makes the same point in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, What I'm saying is this the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. What's the promise? The covenant previously ratified? That's Genesis chapter 15, the Abrahamic covenant. He says, look, the law, the Mosaic covenant came 430 years later. The paradigm for Abraham was not obedience to the law because the law didn't even exist when Abraham was declared righteous. And if Abraham is the father, not only of the Jewish people, but he is the one through whom all people can enter into a relationship with God because of the promises made to him, then he's the way you've got to come. And how was he declared righteous? Not through obedience to the law. Not through his good works, not through religious rituals like circumcision, and not through obedience to the law. Instead, notice what he says in verse 14 again. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Did you get that? For for faith to work as the mechanism in a sense through which God declares you righteous in his sight, it has to be alone. And you can't add anything to it or you wreck it. Now, my in-laws live uh, 448 miles from my front door to their front door. It's 448 miles. They live in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I've driven that road many, many, many times, and I can't find a shorter route. It's 448 miles. is the shortest route, which means I have to stop for gas once. I have to stop for gas once. Or or, I could extend the trip by adding a couple gallons of water to the tank, Right? No. How much water can go in a tank of gas? None. Or you wreck the engine. Okay? It doesn't work if you add any water, any moisture at all. Faith must be alone. It's faith and faith alone. So one of the greatest problems when we add our own, our own good works or what we believe are our own good works is it completely undermines our confidence and our sense of security. Because we're always wondering, have I done enough good works? Have I done the right kind of good works? There cannot be security in our relationship unless we understand it's all the work of Jesus. It's done by Jesus. Notice what he says here in verse 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants of not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who believed before he had the law, and he is the father of us all. How can you know that it's a guarantee? Because you've just received it as a gift. Now, last week we started talking about faith. This week we're focusing on that word alone, but I want to go back, and I want to talk a little bit more about the nature of faith, because I think when we look at at Abraham's faith itself, it's really instructive for us. So read with me. In verse 17, and I want to make a few observations about Abraham's faith. Verse 17 Abraham is the father of us all, as it is written, A father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, Abram believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. So what is faith? Faith is responding to God's initiative, right? Faith is responding to God's promise. Now, Charles Ryrie made uh, this summary statement. He said, The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in the various ages or dispensations. So what this answers is, well, how were people saved before Jesus? Well, Abraham's the paradigm. People were saved before Jesus in a sense the same way they're saved after Jesus. Now, what did Abraham know? Did he know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? No, he did not. What did he know? He knew the promise of God. And so he believed in God, and he trusted that God was able to fulfill what he had promised. Promised. And God could declare him righteous knowing that he would eventually receive payment for all sins, people before Jesus and after Jesus, through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his death and burial and resurrection. So faith is always the response to God's promise. Now, what's the content of our faith now? Acts 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is Jesus. People need to hear the gospel. Of Jesus. They need to hear about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because God's revelation of his, his redemptive program is progressive. Now they have to hear the gospel. What did Abraham know? Well, Abraham knew the promises of God, and so he responded to the promises of God and he believed. Now, let's talk about his faith for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it is the conviction of things not seen. That is, uh, faith is not unreasonable; it's not a blind leap, but it is not ultimately fulfilled in a sense right here and now. Right? Faith is responding to a promise that you don't see yet. Uh, can something exist out of nothing? Well, I've never seen that happen, but apparently it's not impossible. Uh, can the dead be raised? Well, I've never seen it, but it's apparently possible. Can a man who's 100 have a large family? Well, it seems kind of hard to imagine, but it's possible. It's not seen, and Abraham received these promises. He's got a wife who's 90, and she's going to have a child. He received a promise, but he didn't see it immediately. He had to wait for the fulfillment. So faith is, in that sense, initially responding to a promise of God that you haven't seen yet. You haven't seen the fulfillment of it yet. What that means, then, is uh, faith is not certainty, but faith is conviction. Are you tracking with me? Faith is not certainty. If it's responding to something I don't see yet, faith is not certainty. It's not proof. It's conviction. Look at verse 21. It says, And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He was convinced. Did he have proof? God didn't offer him proof. God just offered him a promise. Let me illustrate. Uh, I cannot prove to you that I was born on April 29th, 1965. But I have witnesses. <laughs> right? I have two witnesses and I have a document. It's a signed document and it's a sealed document. I have witnesses and I have a document. I can't prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. But there were witnesses and there are documents. I can't prove to you that God exists. But Romans 1 tells me there is evidence. Right? It's not a blind leap. So I'm convinced. I am persuaded based on the evidence. But I don't have proof. But I'm persuaded. I'm convicted. Now, um, any, do we have anybody in here who's getting married in December? Anybody? Okay, okay. okay. Uh, in, in May, next May, got any getting married next? Okay, we've got a few more in May that are going to get married in May. I'm not going to ask if there's anybody that's already reserved a venue, but you're not engaged, and you're just hoping for a date. Um, <laughs> So I'm just going to tell you ahead of time: when when you get uh, married on that day, you're going to be nervous, and that's okay. Honestly, it's you're kind of crazy if you're not nervous, because you're about to commit your entire life to one person, and you don't have a guarantee. You don't have a guarantee about the other person. You don't have a guarantee about the circumstances you're going to face. I remember my parents, they, they faced some major trials early in their marriage. My dad had a brain tumor, and my mom would always say, you know, if we knew what was coming, we probably wouldn't have had the courage to even get married. But God gave us grace for that moment, right? So, so if you're, you're nervous on your wedding day, right, that's, that's normal. But hopefully you're convinced, right? You're convinced you've seen a pattern. You've been with this person. You know their friends. You know their family. You see the pattern of your life, and so you take a step of faith. Marriage is a step of faith. It's based on a promise, and you're convinced. And the bigger the decision, in a sense, the more convincing we need, right? Um, I picked out this shirt last night. I didn't take a lot of persuasion or convincing. I have other shirts, and if I had worn another shirt, it's not a big deal, whatever. You know, as long as I didn't wear a tank top, then I'd lose my job. But (laughs) right, it's just I don't I don't need a lot of persuasion because there's not a lot riding on what shirt I wear. On a Sunday morning, I chose my major as economics when I was at AM. And you know what? I thought there's not a lot riding on this because I can change my major later, or I can go to grad school and something else later, right? It's not, it's not that huge of a deal. Then I went to seminary, and I realized the longer I was in seminary, when my options were narrowing, it got harder and harder to think about going back, maybe and getting a PhD in economics. So I had to be more persuaded because the consequences were even. Greater. And then when I decided that I wanted to marry Tristy, I had to be really, really persuaded because I was basically saying no to all other options and yes to her. And I was promising her that I'd be faithful to her for the rest of her life. She's promising me the same. There's a lot riding on this decision. So I had to be persuaded or convinced. That's what faith is it's conviction, it's persuasion. Are you persuaded? Are you convinced that what Jesus has promised is true? Now, I frequently hear people saying when they're presenting the gospel, give your life to Jesus. I don't like that terminology. Because it's not about you giving your life to Jesus. It's about receiving life from Jesus. Okay? And that's really, really important. So it's not about giving some, giving all, giving most. It's about receiving from him. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What does it mean to believe? To believe means to receive. One final observation about faith. And that is that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disbelief. Look at verse 20. It says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver so as to disbelieve, but grew strong in faith, giving glory God, right? He didn't waver to disbelieve. That is, uh, disbelief is a settled disposition to reject the promises of God. Abraham certainly had days where he struggled with doubt. You can believe and still struggle with doubt. That's a pretty normal part of the process. But Abraham chose to believe. He didn't disbelieve, even when he didn't see the promise being fulfilled. So my question for you is this. Is faith an event or is faith a process? Yes. The moment that you believe, you are declared righteous. You are redeemed. You are adopted into God's family. You are filled with the Holy Spirit and dwelt with the Spirit. You are sealed until the day of redemption. You belong to God. You are in the family of God. And then your faith will begin to grow. And it's going to be tested, and you're going to be struggling. And Abraham had days where there were good days and there were bad days, but he never chose to disbelieve. He, He kept growing in his faith, even on those days when he was struggling. And you know, when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice, man, that was a really, really hard day. Was he struggling that day? Absolutely, he was struggling. But we're told in Hebrews 11, Abraham's faith had grown to the point where he said to himself, you know what? I guess God can raise the dead. Because he made me a promise that through this son I would have a family. And if I put this son to death and he doesn't have any children, God's going to have to raise him from the dead. I will give him my son. Wow. And so I ask you, is your faith growing? Not just have you believed, but now is your faith growing? And on those days where you're not seeing the promises fulfilled or you're not seeing your hopes fulfilled, it's not a promise from God, just something you want, and you're struggling and you're wrestling, is God good? Is your faith growing? And where do you go in those moments? for your faith to be strengthened rather than destroyed. I would argue that the place that we go is, again, always back to the cross. Because if God gave us Jesus, we can trust him. If God gave us forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we can trust him. Even on the days that circumstances aren't working well. Now, as we close We're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate communion uh, together, and um, I want to wait till all of us are served. If you if you don't have a communion cup, just raise your hand real quick. Uh, But what I'd like for us to do is just to remember that God's given us a promise in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And He's if He's given us that promise, then we can trust Him, right? Even when life is difficult. Even when our circumstances, circumstances seem against us, we can trust him. i to read to you uh, one quote from, uh, can I get the slides back just real quickly? I'm going to give you one quote from Patrick Henry. He said this, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. This was on his deathbed. He said, there's one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that, and I had not given them one shilling, they would be rich. And if I had not given them that, that is faith in Jesus, and had given them all of the world, they would be poor indeed. So I'd like you to take a few moments and let's just quietly go before the Lord. Again, if you didn't get served yet, put your hand up. The rest of us, let's just bow our heads and give God thanks for giving us the gift of life in Jesus. And then in a moment, we'll take the bread and the cup together. Isaiah 53 it says surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him the night that Jesus was was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can we can trust you with our eternity. I pray, Father, for any who are are not persuaded yet that this morning uh, they would be convinced that it is Jesus who has paid our debt of sin and can reconcile us to you. I pray, Father, this morning they would be persuaded that they can trust Jesus. I pray for each of us that we would be persuaded. That we can entrust you with our entire lives. I pray father that uh, even this week we would reflect again upon the sacrifice of Jesus and what he gave and remember that that's that's the basis of all our hope and all our promise Uh, promises from you rest in the fulfillment of his resurrection is conquering sin and death and I pray father that uh, you just even as you stretch our faith, we would, we would lean into you and be like Abraham. Good days and bad days, days of, of doubt and fear. But the tra- trajectory would be upward. We, w- we would grow in our confidence that you are a good God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.